grab a Bible and let's turn to James chapter 2, verse 14. James chapter 2, verse 14. Some pew Bibles are available there if you don't have one today. Um, you can find the sermon text on page 1012. James 2, verse 14 through 17 today. Sometimes I listen to the news while driving. On Wednesday, these two guys were discussing the recent uh, scandal at Baylor University. And there's still must, much investigation that, that must happen to determine the innocent and the guilty, but it looks like another case where uh, leadership didn't abide by school policy. Uh, regarding uh, sexual assault. But I was intrigued by the way the news report ended. You had these two news reporters who were not Christians, and they both noticed that the leadership often said in past interviews how much Christian values mattered to them. And then one of the guys says this, if you're going to say that Christian values matter then your actions better match your words. Your actions better match your words. Sometimes we run into similar contradictions, don't we? We, we know people who profess to know Jesus, but their actions give no indication that they truly know Jesus. Uh, perhaps they claim to have a good relationship with the Lord, but they can't stand being around His people. Perhaps they claim to be Christian, but their priorities look just like the world's priorities. Perhaps they attend church regularly, but the way they treat their fellow employees and the way they speak contradicts the gospel message they hear from week to week. James addresses this contradiction in the rest of chapter 2. The main thrust of his message is that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. Now, I should also mention that we're entering a section that has challenged the church over the centuries, especially Protestants who rightly confess that justification is by faith alone. And yet, at least first glance, James seems to be asserting something different. In verse 24, he says that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Is he contradicting what Paul says elsewhere? That we, can't, that we cannot be saved by our works? Or is James saying something that actually complements justification by faith alone? And we'll see that it, it is certainly the latter, especially since the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired both Paul and James. They are on the same page in regards to works and Justification. I plan to deal with these difficulties over the next two weeks, but today we'll only look at verses 14 to 17. So let's begin by reading those together, starting in verse 14. This is the Lord's Word. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Father, I pray that you would help us now to understand your word, that you would guard us from error and from pride, that you would humble us before your word, and your spirit would use it to transform us and make us into the people we ought to be. We thank you for your grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So if we ask, what is the main point of this next section of Scripture? Verse 17 gives us the answer. It says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That's the conclusion he'll draw from verses 14 to 17. It's also the conclusion of the entire argument that runs to verse 26. He says there, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. But what does James mean when he says that faith without works is dead? To begin answering that question, it's helpful to zoom out and review chapters 1 and 2 in relation to faith, because he mentions it several times. In in chapter 1, verse 3, faith, we saw, perseveres through trial and embraces trials in ways that will conform us to Jesus' character. And then in chapter 1, verse 6, faith is the opposite of wavering in loyalty to Jesus. Faith involves a single-minded devotion to His Lordship. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, faith in Jesus excludes partiality or favoritism of the rich over the poor, in in the case that James is addressing. And, And the way faith actually works itself out is in neighbor love, by by showing mercy to others because of the mercy we've been shown in Jesus. And so by the time we get to verse 14, James has really already developed the nature of true and saving faith. True and saving faith is the absolute dependence of the whole person upon Jesus Christ, but that absolute dependence brings with it a transformative union a transformative union with Jesus that compels us to act in accordance with His character and in accordance with His will and in accordance with His kingdom and in accordance with the way He has treated us. To use the words of chapter 1, verse 22, true faith in Jesus will not only hear the word, it will do the word. So then James comes to verse 14 and says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him. Notice there's the actual possession of faith, and then there's just the claim to have faith. If someone says or claims to have faith but does not have works, the contrast is between a real substantive reliance upon Jesus that necessarily produces works and a phony faith claim. That produces no works. To put it another way, a faith in Jesus Christ without works doesn't even exist in James' mind. It's really no faith in Jesus at all if it's not producing 
works. It's a, it's a faith that's essentially dead. It lacks the obedience-enabling power of a spiritual union with Jesus Christ. It lacks the obedience-enabling power of a spiritual union with Jesus Christ. That's why it's a kind of faith that cannot save. You're actually not united to Jesus at all. You're just saying that you are. It doesn't save not because it hasn't worked hard enough. It doesn't save not because it hasn't added works to it. James isn't making a faith plus works equals salvation type of argument. Rather, this, so, this kind of so-called faith doesn't save because its lack of works proves something about its nature. Its lack of works proves that it's not actively trusting in Jesus at all. A faith that saves you will necessarily produce works. If your faith doesn't result in works, then you will not be saved from the coming judgment. James just finished talking about final judgment in verse 13, and he'll go on to mention our justification in verse 24. Being saved from God's condemnation is in view in this context. A faith that doesn't have works cannot save from God's condemnation. It's altogether lacking the life-giving union with Jesus Christ, and thus it's proving itself to be dead. Some of the Reformers used to put it this way, we are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that remains alone. We are saved by faith alone, but not by faith that remains alone. Martin Luther said this about faith at one point, which is really Ironic, since he called James an epistle of straw in his 1522 edition of the German Bible. Um, later, he would remove that comment. But he says this about faith at one point. He says, faith is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good works incessantly. It never asks whether good works are to be done. It has done them before the question can be asked and is always doing them. Whoever does not do such works is an unbeliever. Thus, it is impossible to separate works from faith, quite as impossible as to separate heat and light from fire. James would wholeheartedly agree. We're not just a bunch of people with sins forgiven. We're an altogether new humanity that cannot help but display the character of our Lord of glory. We cannot help it because the Lord of glory is living and present in us through a, a vibrant faith union. And when Jesus imputes his righteousness to us, it necessarily has an external embodiment in his people. We'll look more at that next week. People will actually see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. His character is being worked in us and then out from us. And this is really the goal of the gospel, spreading to all peoples on earth. Uh, we, we read Romans 16 earlier, and I don't know if, know if you saw the little phrase, the obedience of faith 
But here's Romans 1, 5. He says it again there. Through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all nations. So not just conversion, not just professions of faith, but a faith that produces obedience to Christ the Lord among all peoples for the sake of God's name. That's God's plan for the world. That's our mission as a church. That's the point of making disciples. So what does this mean for us? Yes, we get the point that true and saving faith will produce works. And we get the opposite point that if there's no works, then there's no evidence of true and saving faith. But can we get more concrete? James gets piercingly concrete in verses 15 to 17. He actually identifies the works he's talking about. Now, he'll identify some more next week, like radical obedience to God and taking risks to make God's name famous with Abraham and Rahab. But, but here we see, we see this in verses 15 to 17. He's, he says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, not all of you will need to hear what I'm about to say, but, uh, but because you have, you have seen this all along, but there's a tendency in our conservative, Protestant, Reformed, Baptist circles to read James 2 and immediately get caught up in the theological discussions surrounding faith and works and their relationship to justification and judgment and while it's right to navigate those theological discussions carefully, it's wrong to lose sight of the very works of faith that James identifies in his argument. That is to say, let's not be a people who get so lost in theological discussion over works that we neglect to do the works that are identified here in this passage. And according to verses 15 to 16, care for the poor among us is a crucial mark of saving faith. Care for the poor among us is a crucial mark of saving faith. And that shouldn't catch us off guard considering where we've been. It's chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their Affliction. True faith in Christ will be marked by care for the helpless, will be marked by meeting the needs of, of others. And the whole point of chapter 2 and all of its doctrinal teaching is to motivate that care for the helpless among God's people, to, to motivate meeting the real needs of people within the community of faith. To see a fellow believer in need and neglect to meet those needs to the extent that you're able is an example of this defective faith that James has been addressing. In other words, it goes back to the point we saw last week in verse 13. The one who has truly received God's mercy in Christ will inevitably show mercy to others, especially mercy to the poor. 
If we're not moved to that kind of action, then someone has the right to question whether we're even a Christian. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 says something very similar. He says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? It's very straightforward. To neglect poverty-stricken believers when you are able to help them is a sign that someone does not truly have God's love in them. Their faith is dead. What's even more sobering about this picture is the way that some of them are actually talking. I mean, they're using religious lingo. Go in peace. Be warmed. Be filled. They're giving a blessing. I hope the Lord will give you some warm clothes. I hope the Lord will give you some food. Without any compassion and with no awareness that he or she is the means by which God is choosing to warm and fill the poor brother or sister. Their religious lingo is just a pious cover-up so they don't have to actually deal with them. That's frightening. That's a frightening place to be in when you're using God's name so you don't have to deal with people. Someone has the right to question our salvation if we don't care for the needs of our brothers and sisters when we clearly see it and when we clearly are able to help. Jesus taught the same thing in Matthew 25. Uh, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and He sits on the throne for judgment, people will be accepted or condemned depending on how they treated their, their brothers and sisters who are hungry homeless, lonely, naked, sick, and imprisoned. This is what he says in Matthew 25, verse 34. He says, The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. He's talking about his own disciples. There's such a, a union between Jesus and his people that the way we treat his people is evidence of the way we treat our king. What we think about him... Verse 41 then says of Matthew 25, it gives us the other side, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, 
For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they will... They also will answer, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did it, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So in sum, this is what he's saying. Our attitude toward Jesus is exposed in our attitude toward our poor brothers and sisters, and we will be accepted or condemned accordingly. Since we've been in James, a few of you have actually asked asked me, you know, what do works of faith actually look like? I mean, James is talking about what what do these works of faith actually look like? Well, here's one right here. Meet the needs of your poor brothers and sisters. You know, look around you. Listen for needs. Open your eyes to what other believers may lack. What burdens are they carrying? Not everybody will make their needs known. You you will have to ask. You will have to pursue to know these burdens You will have to know each other and be willing to know each other that well. So it's just natural that she's burdened right now. He's burdened right now by such and such and such. And you meet the need. Do you know a brother or sister perhaps with a chronic illness? Jesus mentioned the sick. And have you been overlooking her or overlooking him? Is there a single mother who may need help with the lawn or children to be watched? And what about the elderly who may need visiting or get dropped off in a nursing home, sometimes never to be visited again by their own family members? Is there somebody you know who doesn't have much and and likely won't ever have much because of a mental or a physical handicap? Perhaps some are suffering from medical conditions and hospital bills that that you can help with. Some of you have already stepped in and done this with great generosity for a number of of, of folks in this room. And it is a blessing to watch as a pastor. Maybe you know someone who'd like to work their way out of poverty, but they've been dealt an unjust distribution of opportunity and resources all of their lives, what can you do to help them, to serve them? Coming up very soon is our VBS, which we're hoping to do in in two different apartment complexes this year. Pray for two things. Pray, one, that God would save people through it, and two, pray for the Lord to prepare us as a congregation to care for some of those in serious need. I mean, it's very likely that someone with with great material and relational needs could could become a Christian. And they'll need a church home. That means they will need our assistance. Will we actually be ready to help them? 
This is something the elders have even been praying about in terms of our own readiness to help them. Helping the poor among us is often a, a very lengthy process that will involve time. They need rides. They need counseling. They need education. They need equipping it, and teaching. It, it will involve actually listening to them and, and, and then discerning the cause of their impoverished state. It's not always just they lack material things. Poverty is, is much broader than... than lacking material things. If we define poverty merely in terms of material things, we'll likely not provide the help that they truly need. Andy and I had a a couple come by the church on Thursday who claimed to be Christians, and they needed cash to refill her insulin prescription. And we wanted to help. I mean, especially if this lady is telling us she knows God... Now, it's never wise in a situation like that to just hand out cash to the poor. But Andy said that he would take them to Walmart and get the prescription filled for them and then went off to make a sandwich, a couple of sandwiches for them, and they drove off while he was making their sandwiches. I asked him, you know, why are you driving off? Their their demeanor, everything changed when we said we don't have cash. But, right? You see, there was more going on than just a lack of material things. It wouldn't have helped them a a bit to just hand them a a $10 bill or, or whatever. If they truly needed the insulin and Andy had agreed to buy it for them, why'd they drive away? There were relational things that were wrong. Their relationship with God, for starters. Perhaps in their relationship with themselves and the, and the shame that, they, that was involved in, in having to ask for help and run around to all these different places. Perhaps in their relationship with, with us who were actually offering them real help. It's intimidating. Yeah, those things take time to work through. It will take time to truly love poverty-stricken brothers and sisters. It will take resources. It will take emotion, emotional energy to actually sit down with them and work hard to equip them and, and see where they, they need to be equipped and then train them where they need to be trained to help them see what it means to worship God through integrity at work and faithfulness at home and contentment in Christ before you go out and spend your money. But true faith will actually do these things. It will do these works. Now, please hear me. Don't meet the needs of your brothers and sisters to win favor with God. Don't meet their needs to escape judgment. Don't meet their needs in order to be saved. If that's how you do it, you won't last and you will still perish on the last day. Our works never save us. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus' works and person alone that we are saved. Rather, meet their needs 
because of the favor God has already shown you in Jesus Christ. It's not a faith and works relationship. It's a works because of everything that Jesus has done for us relationship here. We, we don't love others to win God's love. We love because He first loved us. We minister to others in their need because God ministered to us in our need. He came to our aid when we were dead in our sins without hope. We had no power to change our desperate predicament. We were helpless beneath His wrath, we, and, he, and He still loved us. He loved us by sending His only Son to die for us. Jesus set aside the, the riches of glory in heaven. He became poor, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions like you read earlier. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. We are made rich with God because of the work of Jesus Christ alone. And if we have come to share in these spiritual blessings, then we ought also to be of service to our brothers and sisters in material blessings. That's the way Paul puts it in Romans 15. And those can be brothers here locally in close proximity to us. It could be brothers across the globe that we take up a collection and send them money. That's, that's how faith compels good works toward the poor. True faith sees the beauty of God's generosity in Jesus when we were still helpless. And through that treasuring of Jesus and what He's done for us, the Holy Spirit makes us more and more like Jesus in the way that, that we treat the poor, in the way we seek their benefit, in the way we do them justice. Now, perhaps you're someone who realizes that while you've professed to have faith in Jesus, the truth is that all the evidence in your life proves otherwise. Again, I want to say, I want to stress this. this like the works that James is mentioning here, these, they're more like signposts than ropes to climb. They're signposts on your way to glory, not ropes to climb to get to glory. They are signs that say whether or not you're a Christian. And maybe you're, you're hearing this, faith without works is dead, and, and all the evidence in your life proves you haven't really professed faith in Jesus Christ. You don't have a union with Him. You, you realize that you don't have any works that evidence a saving union with Jesus. You, you realize that you, don't have a, you haven't had any compassion for the helpless around you. Don't ignore the Spirit of God speaking through this word. Don't resist the kindness of God in showing you the true state of your soul this morning. I don't care if you've been a member here for as long as this church has existed. If the Spirit through the word has exposed that what you thought was faith wasn't really faith all along, then today is the day of salvation. Listen to the voice of your Savior who is speaking in His word. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and the Bible promises you will be saved. It's not too late. Jesus hasn't returned yet. And this church won't look down on you for admitting your need of Christ either. We need Christ too. All of us. We will rejoice over the Lord's salvation. None of us deserve to have our eyes open. God did it and He still does it and He's doing it. 
Jesus stands ready to save you this morning. Trust in him and let us know how we can serve you in baptism and discipleship and even teaching you how to serve those who are in need around you. We're still learning how to do that. Or perhaps you've attempted to reach out to the poor, but you've just been burned so many times. You just keep facing disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. You've built walls now to protect yourself from being hurt again by them. Or perhaps, maybe, your political opinions on poverty have led you to back off caring for the poor. George Marsden even narrates this movement by evangelicals in his book, Fundamentalism in American Culture. There was a large shift in the 1900s where evangelicals rightly distanced themselves from the social gospel movement, but at the same time wrongly retreated from the front lines of poverty alleviation. And we're the ones that have the true gospel. And so sometimes we can tend to be dismissive of James's words. I don't mean like, I don't want to hear it type of dismission, but, but like at least want to qualify it a hundred times over before you actually take it in till there's practically nothing left of this passage or any command to serve the poor. I want you to listen to the words of Robert Murray McChaney. They are super helpful here as he points us to the gospel of Jesus in caring for the poor. He says this, Now, dear Christians, some of you pray night and day to be branches of the true vine. You pray to be made all over in the image of Christ. And if so, you must be like him in giving. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. And then he starts listening off some objections that people listening to him might, might, might have. Objection number one, my money is my own. Answer, Christ might have said, my blood is my own. And then where would we all be? Objection number two, The poor are undeserving. Answer. Christ might have said, They are wicked rebels. Shall I lay down my life for these? I will give to the good angels. But no, he left the 99 and came after the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection number three. The poor may abuse it. answer. Christ might have said the same, yea, with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse for sinning more, and yet he gave his own blood. Oh, my dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the vile and poor, the thankless and the undeserving, Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It is not your money I want, but your happiness. Remember his words. It is more blessed to give than to receive. If your attitude is more dismissive, look again to your Savior. 
Look again at the Bible. I mean, the Bible's storyline has been building to this point that you are sitting in right now where the poor would be cared for in a new humanity, a new community. It was anticipated in Israel. The law taught Israel to show mercy to the poor among them and to do them justice. Since God had rescued them when they were helpless in slavery, the people were then to reflect God's redemption of them and and their care for for the helpless and the sojourner and the refugee and the widow and the orphan. And of course, Israel failed miserably. That's why I sent them into Babylon for this stuff. Read Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 58. They failed to be that community. And then Jesus comes. The true Israel. He fulfills all of their obligations to the poor. Indeed, the Spirit anoints him to preach the good news to the poor in particular. And, then, and when he starts saving the oppressive rich people like Zacchaeus, what starts happening? Zacchaeus is like, oh, I've got to give half my goods to the poor. I've got to get rid of these things, give them to the poor. It's the natural outworking of that salvation to want to give half his goods to the poor. Here's a true child of Abraham, and I'm going to his house tonight. Jesus then dies for all of our stingy attitudes toward the poor. And then he rises from the dead to fill the church with his spirit. And what do we find the church doing in the book of Acts? Fulfilling what the law had envisioned for God's covenant community all along. There was not a needy person among them, the Bible says. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. In other words, Jesus not only is what Israel should have been, he creates a new community of people who treat the poor just like he treats the poor. With generosity... That's the Bible storyline. And by placing you in Christ, it's your storyline. We are the new humanity that shows mercy to the poor among us and does them justice. And that is especially true for all of the poor that God brings into the covenant community. Finally, perhaps you're someone who feels burdened by a message like this. I mean, you've got kids to take care of because you don't want them to become orphans, right? You've got an illness, perhaps, that leaves you without physical resources to reach out like others can reach out. You're living hand-to-mouth already, and what kind of help can you actually be, perhaps, is is your thought. Or maybe you're even reaching out to the poor already. I know that some of you are, and sometimes you, you feel in over your head. You, you just, the needs just keep mounting up as you're talking to them, and they can't get through their list before you're going, I, I don't even have, I don't even know, have a clue where to start. I don't know what to do. I want to make, mention two things for you. Number one, I want you in those moments to remember your generous Father in heaven. You're right, you don't have the resources to live this way that that James is talking about. But Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. 
Why? Because we have a Father in heaven who knows how to give good things to his children. Jesus makes this connection in Matthew 7. It's a glorious connection, and sometimes we, we miss it. And I want you to see it so you can rely more on it. Look at verse 12. I even love it. The ESV labels it the golden rule, right? This is the neighbor love that we talked about last week. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. And you're hearing the list, and you're overwhelmed by this serving your, your poor brothers and sisters, and you're going, because you, that, that verse requires love of me, and love is hard in that situation, and we totally miss the word so at the beginning of the verse. Verse 12, so whatever, or therefore, and it's supposed to point you back in that moment when your wish that others would do to you, do also to them, in that moment, you're supposed to be relying on the God of verses 7 to 11. And he is generous father in heaven, isn't he? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks and receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks will open to him. Or which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So he's the one with the resources. Go to him often. True love demands much from us, but the Lord never leaves us without the resources to love as He's called us to since we have Him. And He promises never to leave us or forsake us, and He will meet all of our needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus. Number two, if you are burdened, remember the church that God gave you. Remember the church, His people that He gave you. Each of us are in different places financially, some make more, some make less. Our physical bodies are each affected by the fall differently. And for some of us, that will limit the kinds of help that we are able to give. For some, that means you're laying in bed praying because you can't get out of bed. Others, it will mean you're giving. Others, it will mean you're working. Others will mean it's strategizing. Others will mean that you're teaching. Each of us have, have different margins for time because of other responsibilities that God, God has called us to at work or at home or even in the church. Each of us have different skills and abilities to contribute. And God did it that way for His own glory and our unity. He did it that way for our own interdependence upon one another as we're carrying the mission of God to these other folks in, in the world. We're doing it together. And James is not saying that every person has to do everything. Caring for the helpless among us is a community effort. So find your place alongside other brothers and sisters Remember that you are God's means of caring for others around you. So when they come needing to be warmed and filled, your first thought is not, God bless you, here's a Bible verse to encourage you. It is, I am the means. I am the means. 
We remember that. And then we simply just be faithful at our post. As you learn the needs and seek, seek to meet them. Jesus is the one building His church and He's much wiser than we are. Let's, let's trust that the way He has set it up is right and good for us. So remember your generous Father in Heaven and remember the church that you have with you. Why don't we sing together on that note?